0: It's a really interesting uh, dynamic because the, you know if you're in the ED, your job is to stabilize the patient, move them to the definitive care, and then the group that's in definitive care takes over. And you know their visibility to making a, a wrong decision after the patient's out of your care isn't center. So it's really, there's a, a bit of a education there awareness component on patient safety that is unifying between through the patient care pathway and having all all of the providers kind of line up and agree that this is an, an area that we can collectively
1: work towards. Why are we making patients stay longer in the ICU than they actually need to? My name is Jeff and this is How It's Met, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of healthcare and health tech. Here, we learn about the stories, secrets and skills of VCs, founders, clinicians and health systems influencers who are shaping our healthier, longer lives of the future. This time around, we're rejoined by Joe Eibold, the CEO and co-founder of Flowsonix Medical, a company that leverages miniaturized ultrasound in order to prevent ICU admissions and to shorten length of stays in ICUs. Let's get started. You went from uh, EMTs to eMERGE to ICU to step-downs. Um, and honestly, if we're talking about fluid status as well, then uh, preventing bounce back from heart failure discharges would have a huge impact. So the next logical question, at least in my head from a health economic standpoint, if you zoom even uh, out even further, is what is the actual health economic impact of uh, preventing, for example, uh, fluid overload or... Uh, knowing whether or not a patient uh, is hemorrhaging or even uh, preventing heart failure uh, readmissions?
0: Yeah, three great and different uh, questions, but I'll stick to the sepsis and volume overload sure. load story because that's the one that we're uh, most acutely focused on uh, right now, postsonics. So in 2020, a really nice trial came out. It's called It as a randomized RCT, or sorry, randomized controlled trial in RCT that um, looked at uh, standard care resuscitation versus precision fluid management during resuscitation. I think it was about 150 patients, uh, five-center study. And what they found was patients that were in the precision resuscitation ended up with uh, fewer fluids onboarded, uh, less time in the ICU uh, Less need for mechanical ventilation. I think the number needed was about one in five, one in six.
1: That's really and good. The
0: need for renal replacement therapy. And that number is like, you know, that number needed to treat was one in eight. Jeez. So there's, you know, really a, a big, uh, and there, there was a signal towards mortality, but it wasn't, it wasn't powered for mortality. The primary outcome was, uh, reducing intervening, reducing the need for uh, intervened foods. So it's really nice study that demonstrated that precision matters in food resuscitation and then there have been a number of meta analyses that have come out afterwards, looking at larger cohorts, and the and when you take the numbers needed to treat from the fresh trial and run them out on uh, time saved in the ICU, which is about a day and a half, uh, the need for mechanical ventilation, which is uh, mechanical ventilation, is a very expensive uh, treatment in the ICU. And uh, renal replacement therapy estimates are somewhere between 10 and 15,000 dollars in additional cost for uh, patients who are food overloaded during their sepsis care pathway. So, if you can make that better decision earlier and divert the patient from even having to go to the ICU, the cost savings are uh, remarkable and good health economics for the patient. And uh, I don't know if, you've, as a clinician, you've seen uh, mechanical ventilation before, but you know, it's, it's not something that is, uh, is nice to be on and it. it can be prevented. I think that's a, a very meaningful patient-centric outcome. So, you know, the, the fact that the we able will demonstrate reduced need for mechanical ventilation and renal replacement therapy are big, um, big benefits to you, why precision fluid management matters in addition to the economic story.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that's $15,000 potentially per patient. Uh, and there are many patients who flow in and out of ICU or step down units who require those extra therapies. And that's on top of other use cases that aren't yet quantified when it comes to health economic benefits. So certainly there's quite a large health economic benefit. There's also clinical benefit, as you mentioned as well. And that's super interesting to see. Um, I guess the the question that kind of starts tailing off uh, outside of clinical context is uh, the work that you uh, did kind of building the business so we know that you started building the business alongside your physician co-founder dr Kenny, um and uh that you ended up i guess validating the 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 i guess clinical scenario in which you wanted to build the product and you've now been able to deploy it now in some centers but throughout this whole experience thus far since at least 2016 2015 What's been the hardest part about building the business?
0: Yeah. Not that I can point to any one part that was hard so Mm -hmm. much as it changes in, you know, from stage to stage, where in the early days, it's about figuring out if, if there's, you understand the clinical unmet need, you've got a basic understanding for the technology, you've got a basic understanding for the business model, do all the pieces fit together that you've got a business that you can finance and get going. then question number two is, okay, now it's time to finance the business. Do we have all the pieces and the team in place that a credible investor will back us? And we were really fortunate in the early days to have, again, um, partners in Genesis Capital that uh, jumped in with us to you know, build the prototype, uh, get your FD clearance and get some really clinical data. And more recently, our breeding Ventures, um, was our, our uh, newest investor and really they've, they've got a, a mandate to look for technologies that improve patient care while uh, decreasing overall costs of healthcare and we, we, our technology is really nicely aligned with that um, that mission. So our Arboretum, as uh, the work we've been doing since they um, joined our our investor syndicate, has really been focused on, okay, how do we implement this at a departmental level and health system level and how do we really impact their, the patient journey from start to end so that you get, uh, yeah, the quadruple their their the patient, the, the clinician, the payer and the sort of provider and the payer and everybody ends up uh, with a win and that, that's actually, yeah. There's a lot, a lot of different moving parts there that have to align, and that that's kind of where we're focused right now. And we've had a lot of success recently with early clinical sites implementing and, uh, patient flows well, and, and uh, patient journey. So it's it's something that we're focused a lot on now. And then you know, the next stage will be really how do we turn this into standard of care across the um, and and across the continued care in North America, Europe uh, the world. That makes sense. A long way to go between you and there, but that's, you know, I'd say if there's anything that, that is challenging to come back to the early questions, just the flexibility, uh, to be able to, to shift into new cat, you know, new types of problems, Mm -hmm. identify the the people that are best suited to help you address them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That, that actually kind of dovetails my next question. So like uh, I was able to look online, you had mentioned a couple of investor groups that have joined your syndicate. There's uh, also early on NORCAT, its innovation mill, Laurentian University's Lazaridis uh, scale-up program. So how did you know which groups to get into touch with at the right time so you had the right resources to execute properly when solving the time-sensitive problems?
0: Yeah, uh, great question. I think that kind of comes back to, you know, I came straight out of a postdoc, no business training, formal business training at all sorts, it, it was a real, it's still a learning curve, um, of course, but in the early, early stages, it's just about finding out what, you know, what kind of, um, equation you're trying to solve the variable for, mm-hmm. right. And that there's probably 10 really important ones that are on the board at the start, um, you know, technical expertise, um, uh, senior statement or, you know, somebody on the team that's been through the stages before they can help you see around corners, th- thinking through the business market, I don't, have, don't need to list them all in this, uh, in this moment, but really that, that, um, I, I, knowing who those people are is, is not really obvious when you're getting started and you don't have a frame of reference. Becomes much easier, probably like clinical medicine, right? When you develop pattern recognition, you've seen this before. You understand what where the challenges and the watchouts are going to be um, down the line. they very similar when you're moving through the the stages of entrepreneurship. Once you've once you've seen good, you know what good looks like. Until you've seen good, you know, you're you're kind of basing it off your other experiences, and if there are not many of them, then you're you know, hoping that other people will, will give you advice and through through that. So there's a great call out there. The folks at Norcat, folks at um, uh, the Ontario Bioscience Innovation Organization, the uh, Lazaridis program was absolutely amazing. The mentors there were world, world class, and um, Fogarty Institute, which is the uh, the latest accelerator program that we've uh, participated in, are really. Uh, uh, prestige accelerator for medtag and their the leadership there and the mentors are at the next level. Mm-hmm. So just surrounding surrounding yourself with with people that have murder and have more experience than maybe that's a short answer I could have fair
1: enough. Um, I think another challenge that's important, especially uh, in the development of a clinical product that provides clinically relevant information, especially during resuscitation, is clinical data. Um because it's pivotal to convincing physicians to use new services or medical devices, do you have a story in particular that exemplifies uh the the greatest challenges that you face in getting access to clinical data and the lessons that you learn in order to successfully carry out different pivotal studies such as the cheekly named stop flooding study?
0: very uh, questions and uh, yeah it's, it, it is a provocative beam, but I think it really uh speaks to the problem that we're trying to solve. So I think that probably tackle the question two ways, uh, the first, first way I could interpret that question is, you know, what is a challenge to getting patient data? And, you know, our device is not invasive, it's small form factor, it's easy to use and there's that has a lot of benefits in getting that early validation data. You can do it in a patient setting. You can still get representative patients that in your uh, demographic, but those patients are not in the clinical environment. So yeah, getting getting validation that your technology is doing what it's supposed to do, that their numbers are lining up the way you invite them to. That part was pretty straightforward for us early on. And then as you start getting into patients who are uh, in illness, then your uh, device needs to be a lot more advanced. Your prototype needs to be more advanced. You need to be in a spot where you've you know, you've got all of the safety testing done, that you're not going to interfere with any of the clinical workflows or patient care, that you've got the right um, team members that have the clinical training to be able to deploy the technology in the clinical environment, collect the data, and then you've got to analyze it. Right. And all of those things are, are logistic considerations. So, I mean, we've, we've, I think we're 34, 35 uh, manuscripts now that are uh, validation studies and peer-reviewed literature. So we've spent a lot of time um, in there from that early stage kind of validating on the bench to healthy volunteers, peers, to uh, emergency department, critical care, surgical Heart failure patients. So there's there's a number of different populations that that we've um, spent validating on. So that part's been uh, really important. The second part, um, the question that you asked here, uh, that I think is interesting, is really around um, belief structures in medicine and what data people need to see to be able to change their behavior. And it's really interesting because it's I, I, you can I can divide it kind of into almost like a generational categories in that there's a group of people that train with ultrasound and that are you know have, have a clinical playbook that they've been using for many years. They've got to see different type of data to change their behavior than the clinicians that have trained with ultrasound, that grow up, that understand it, and that it's natively built into their clinical practice. They they have a um, a different set of data that they're looking for when they want to decide if they're going to incorporate a new technology into their workbook. It's probably true across all medicine. You know, it's not, not unique to our technology versus another technology, but it's something that I don't know is obvious to me before getting into... Looking at, at um, adoption profiles mm-hmm. in clinical setting, the one thing that I will say, and it's been a real um, tailwind for us, is that fa- faster and easier uh, is always better. And uh, compared to current workflows, we've we've had a lot of really great feedback from the nursing team, the physician team, and you know another trend is is making it easy enough for anybody to use. So where we, you used to have to have our, Scholarship level trainee, or you're a sonographer or an ultrasound technician, imaging technician, it would have to come down and do the assessment. You know, the workflow now is you go to the Pixis, you grab a flow patch, you put it on the patient, you get an answer, which is you know, a much lower bar to, um, to hurdle it, to be able to make an informed decision for that resuscitation of the men.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I think another question that ties in a previous bit of uh, information that you brought in was, that your workflow is tied to the critical care and ED environment, uh, especially in the critical care environment where, uh, patients may be more sick and there may be more willingness to try new therapy because patients are so gravely ill by that time. Um, do you, do you think that that start point provided more, uh, openness or ease of adoption, uh, for you than there would have been otherwise?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I don't know that it's uniform for sure. If- for sure there's a there's an aspect to it, but I think the other um component that is you know to, has made it more uh easily easily understood is just in the in the i c u environment there's just so much visibility to the clinical problem there. And and with how the clinical problem starts, they just saying like yes, I and mean, this is a way that we can prevent that. You know, we're we're definitely uh, in favor of of, of uh, moving in that direction or adopting the technology. The part that's really interesting about that is is there's more than one stakeholder here. The folks in the emergency department you know, also have to recognize the problem. And it's it's a really interesting uh, dynamic because, the, you know, if you're in the ED, your job is to stabilize the patient, move them to the definitive care, and then the group that's in definitive care takes over. And, you know, the visibility to making a, a wrong decision after the patient's out of your care isn't front and center. So it's really, there's a, a bit of a, education and awareness component on patient safety that is, you know, unified between through the patient care pathway and having all, all of the providers kind of line up and agree that this is a, an, an area that we can collectively work towards to pay, you know, so clinicians said to me, the, uh, the other days patient safety is everybody's job. Mm-hmm. So, so is, uh, you know, a nice, uh. Let's say, right, but, uh, I guess take a point is multiple stakeholders, are not, and often there are different views to where the um, uh, friction points are in yeah. that patient pathway.
1: Absolutely. You mentioned there that there is sometimes uh, poor visibility uh, from different parts or different individuals or groups who are involved in deciding whether or not. A product such as the flow patch should be procured so how do you navigate or do you have a mental model as to how you kind of uh top down understand which portions or which groups to talk to and convince uh so that a a procurement i guess project goes through successfully
0: yeah i mean for, for sure and i think we're um if you you had to take a thirty thousand foot view of it, it's the patient safety issue right? Anybody that comes in the hospital if if you're not being thoughtful and double brick and precise with fluid management, especially that separate care path sepsis care pathway, you can find yourself in all too often in the i c u four five seven liters positive on fluids now you're on the mechanical ventilator renal replacement therapy in your ICU for two weeks where precision food management, you know, maybe you didn't even get fluid overloaded and you didn't even need to go to the ICU, you ended up and sat down and got discharged earlier, right? Like it, it's a, uh, an extreme dichotomy, but you know, there's that. it's a very real clinical problem that happens every day. So, you know, starting with patient safety and asking the Hospital, how are you currently making sure that that for first scenario has been where we're not accidentally flooding somebody? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, accident, you know, just because we're checking, yeah. right? And it, it's all too easy. Patients hypotensive, you get them fluids, shift change, they're still hypotensive. Let's give them some more fluids, you know. Okay, we'll go up to the ICU, air you know, shift change, different people working. How much foods does this patient had and all, let's just give them a little fluid, see if they get better. And, you know, we've, we've got a number of, of uh, in that stop, um, flooding study. Clinicians were blinded to the four-clutch data. We just kind of, uh, trapped yeah, the right. utilization of fluids. And it's about 37% foods administered, uh, in their emergency department were ineffective at augmenting stroke volume surrogates in the patient population. Right. And in in that we've got a, a few case reports that are been published. One's published in the Journal of Ultrasound. But there's a the patient came in fluid unresponsive the presentation. They got four and a half liters. They were in the ED for twenty six hours. They ended up in the ICU, ventilated, and ended up there. you know like that's a very complex course of care. And somebody that was in a bed for quite a long time in the ED and ended up getting a lot of fluids that. You know, they didn't need, when they got into their ICU, there was a, uh echo the next day and the identifier patient was in there. Uh, volume overload, had pulmonary edema, and required uh, mechanical support for ventilation, right? So it just, you know, not that anybody did anything specifically wrong, it was just the safety, it's worked there, for the mm-hmm. and that happens every day in hospitals across the world. Mm-hmm.
1: So what I'm hearing is that having a story where you highlight the patient journey through the hospital with the uniting patient, I guess, or uniting factor of patient safety in mind, then speaking to the different interests that different groups have, uh, I guess, within the workflow is kind of how you step by step uh, open conversations and then bring up the benefits of the full patch, for example. Correct.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, it's a, it's a, a really good um, follow-up to that is that, you know, each of the stakeholders in that care pathway have slightly different uh, scorecards that they're being called uh, accountable for, right? In the emergency department, it's uh, patient stabilization and triage in the ICU. It's you know, patient outcomes. Uh, it, you have got more time. We've got more tools. And uh, We can be more more deliberate about uh, care. So really, you know, harmonizing or getting alignment between, you know, improving both treatment and precision and triage for the emergency department, making the life of the ICU easier by preventing the, those patients from again, with volume that needs to be removed through all complications come across with it is really uh, Top of mind for for everybody, and it really centers on a lot of the discussions that, that we have with the stakeholders as we're bringing Flow Patch into these uh, these hospitals.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, as a last question on the business development of the Flow Patch, um, you mentioned that the user experience now is so easy that almost any clinician at bedside can essentially slap the Flow Patch on and get insight into how the patient is doing. What's a, do you have a story in particular, or an anecdote that highlights the challenges that it took to get the user experience so streamlined, so that there would be easier adoption or fewer barriers to adoption uh, of the of the tool and the data, I guess, storefront that you provide.
0: Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I think it really. Um, maps to the question about, you know, knowing the user Mm -hmm. and knowing what kind of information that user is going to want. And when we, we built our first prototypes and uh, devices, we, we were bringing them to cardiac anesthesia, uh, cardiology intensivists that uh, were ultrasound users. we got a lot of really great feedback. We developed kind of our first user interface based on feedback. But then we got into the clinical setting and started using it. What we found was really it was a nursing-driven workflow and that nurses were the uh, healthcare workers primarily who were uh, deploying, uh, caring for the patients who were hanging the fluid bank who had the question at the bedside, obviously in collaboration with the the treating uh, physician, but the workflow was on the nursing side. So the user interface we had developed for the uh, cardiac anesthesiologist was not the same user face that the nurse was looking for to be able to make a decision in real time. So, um, you know, what, what ended up happening is we, uh, we built, uh, a second workflow, which has actually, you know, become our primary workflow. That is more of a, a, a guided, uh, step-by-step, uh, wizard. If you will, to uh, do do a a fluid assessment or a, a dynamic assessment to see how the patient's responding to those intravenous fluids, or will respond to their If you do some thoracoscopic where the uh, original uh, or the original user interface that we build a lot for deep investigation, you know the, the Doppler blood flow how it's changing the morphologies, all of the different Doppler metrics, the you know, those uh, cardiac anesthesiologists we're familiar with. So it was, it was really um, about understanding the, the, the user, which you know, in hindsight is obvious. It was just, I think when we had our first development on this technology, we kind of um, we, we identified that uh, the ultimate user of the technology was going to be the, uh, the nursing team rather than the cardiac anesthesiologist.
1: That's fair enough. And kind of to to tie up this conversation overall. Um, Your company uh, is based in Sudbury and uh, Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver are kind of known more than Sudbury uh, to be where a lot of innovation happens and where to assume a lot more resources are available to support startups like yours. How do you think overall systemically resources could have been ideally better deployed to support startups like Flosonics to better grow and stay in Canada or are they already deployed but just not well known?
0: Um, yeah, it's, it's a active area, yeah. uh, debate, policy, innovation ecosystem. I think very generally Canada is just an amazing job of fostering, uh, startups, technology development, like, we're, we're really, really good at developing new technologies, the commercialization part tends to be more capital intensive. And that's typically where you end up seeing the kind of, um, fall Fallout's well, the wrong term, but you know, where companies get acquired by a larger U.S. Uh, multinational, or where the you know the funding just kind of doesn't doesn't go far enough in the ecosystem that can support the company to develop into um, you know a, a, an an anchor company in the in the innovation ecosystem. Of course, there's there's lots of examples where your know, companies have been successful, but you know they're thinking the Broader discussion—that that's where we could do more—is you know just the government investing more in you know mid-stage, late-stage VC in healthcare and you know, other industries. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know the talent pools that we have again are world-class. The engineering, the uh, clinical teams, the clinical facilities we have So, in medical device and in, uh, life science in general you know canada is a great place to start a company to, to build up and to uh execute there's a there's a number of success stories that you can point to that have done just an amazing job um being in Sudbury is is kind of a function of, of you know where others you know where i lived when we started the company and we've been really fortunate to continue to grow the company here but yeah you know, again with and it probably helped by the transition to global, well, We've been able to recruit talent uh, across the province, across the country, and um, now launching into the U.S. Um, you know, even U.S. team members who are helping the, uh, the commercial side of the business. So, you know, it's part of being flexible. It's part of being nimble and part of understanding, you know, how to um, how to develop and, and grow and North team through the different... Uh, stages and where you know where the good people are giving giving great people opportunities to uh, to excel so yeah there's i don't think there's any wrong way of doing it It are just you know there's lots of right ways so you know depends on the circumstance
1: yeah and then just last to close off i always give our guests an opportunity to plug their pluggables so if there's anything that our guests can do to help uh, FluSonic succeed what is it
0: well if you're to your clinician and any of the points about uh preventing fluid overload or um, wearable wireless Doppler to help hemodynamic management or precision resuscitation uh resonate with you, uh please send us an email, info at floatsonics uh dot com. is the website. And uh, if you go to PubMed and type in Flosonics, you'll get a whole bunch of our publications of so Anybody is interested in uh, demo or really call, please uh, please do reach out. We're uh, really eager to partner with organizations, hospitals, and improve patient care. And uh, Jeff, really appreciate the opportunity for being on the, uh, the podcast. Thanks so much.
1: Awesome, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.